Welcome to the Artist Podcast, the podcast for the visual artist. I'm your host, Hugo van Skalkwijk. Now, I'm not a professional artist. I'm a part-time bricoleur and a full-time project manager. But I love art, and I love talking to artists. With this podcast, I hope to introduce you to artists, whether they do it professionally or for themselves. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our Patreon that helped make this podcast possible. Thank you, Cocosita. And if you'd like this podcast and would like to contribute, head on over to patreon.com forward slash artists podcast, where you can learn how you can get your name or gallery name called out at the beginning of the show. In this episode, we talk to Lala Crawford. Lala does installation art in light. She also is a lecturer and a great supporter of collaborations. If you'd like to see some examples of Lala's work, head on over to www.artistspodcast.co.za. There you will find out more details of what we discuss. Hello, Lala. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Great stuff. Tell me, where does the the name Lala come from? Um, it's actually a family name. It's my grandmother's name as well. So um, yeah, it's just L-A-L-A. And my second name is my other grandmother. So I would have to ask Oma Lala to find out where it comes from. But I think it was her nickname. Tell us a bit about your history. Where do you come from? Well, um, I've lived in Pretoria all my life. However, I spent a lot of my childhood in the Sabi Sand uh, Game Reserve. Um, we used to have a nature reserve farm there. So I spent most of my time uh, doing tracking. And initially, I thought I was going to be a game ranger and not necessarily an artist. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow, you must have had an amazing childhood. Yeah, I was extremely privileged to be in that environment, um, just completely surrounded by nature. We didn't have electricity. So I think I was, um, from an early age, introduced to understanding your surroundings through your senses and um, doing tracking as well, being very aware of scents and animal sounds. And we didn't even have a fence around our camp. So, um, you know, wildlife would just uh, walk through the camp and we had to learn a lot about uh, conserving nature and things like that. Was your parents creative? Um, Yes, actually, my father is an ecological architect. I'm very proud of his work as well. He's very inventive with materials and to come up with low cost, eco-friendly or sustainable solutions. And my mother is a a photographer and also fine artist. So she really looks at what um, the lens can show people that you don't necessarily see with your own eyes. So I definitely think that influenced me um, in the long run in my work. Excellent. How did you start out as an artist? (laughs) Um, Well, as I mentioned, I initially thought I was going to be a game ranger. Um, But then in order to document uh, my experiences on the farm and because we didn't have television and things like that, I did a lot of drawings, um, which my parents encouraged. And I think that just started formulating this idea that um, I want to interpret my surroundings uh, on other surfaces, whether that's paper or whether that's sculpture. So from an early age, I realized that I wanted to be an artist, but I did have some options by the time I got to choose my study. So I'm really into music as well, and I play drums. And so I had to choose between music, architecture, design, and art. And then I decided, you know what, let's do art because maybe I can do a little bit of everything else that I'm interested in there. <laughs> Fantastic. So you're like a, um, I hate the term, jack of all trades. <laughs> um, not, I think I was just very scatterbrained, but I do like working interdisciplinary uh, things into my artwork. So I guess you could say that, but it's more about um, finding the links between different fields and art really does do that for me. That's true. I mean, uh, uh, myself, I, I do multiple set of things um, of which um, this video podcasting is one of the set. And I always find that people go around and they say like, um, you need to focus on one thing alone, but, but that doesn't give me any sort of pleasure. I need to do all of it. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think, uh, especially these days, it's very difficult to choose one nature, um, or sorry, I mean, one direction to go into uh, because there's so many platforms also available. And I think it's especially with podcasts and videos, there are so many avenues that you need to explore. As soon as you take a photo or a video of something, you start analyzing its contents and that will probably influence um, 
the different directions that you can go into it, whether it's a narrative oriented thing or a documentative thing. I definitely think that these days um, it's difficult to stick to one thing. Yeah, I find that with the video, uh, the video recording, um, um, because I, I run through so many different um, uh, genres and fields, that with the video recording was the one that that's the most interdisciplinary of them all in that you actually have to learn how to do sound. You also have to learn how to do photography. You also have to learn how to do um, uh, stage setup and all those things, which it's not just one little thing that you can focus on. You have to focus on everything at the same time. Definitely. And I think um, video kind of got me into installation art because um, I think around my second year when I was a fine arts student, I started looking into uh, making videos because we had some projects to do for Varsity. And um, I realized that I was very interested, not only obviously in the contents of the video and stuff, but also how people present videos in things like galleries. Um, so the, the way that videos are presented through projection specifically intrigued me because the projection of light um, is even more interesting than just the image that you're looking at. When you think about the fact that light is a spatial thing and how people tend to not look at the um, of that look at that aspect of the video, they look just at the image that's captured. So I, I really liked the fact that light has this sort of invisible barrier in space when you actually look at uh, projections and notice how it changes the color of a room or something like that. This is quite interesting because I'm taking out of the queue. Um, have, have you ever been to, um, what's it, Barcelona? Not yet, no. I really would love to go. Um, um, Gaudi, um, Gaudi did his, he's in Barcelona, right? Um, where, so. yeah, where, yeah. Yeah, where, where Gaudi's um, Sagrada Familia is. But in there, what he's done is he's, um, he's used uh, um, normal stone. It's a, it's a light uh, beige, uh, yellow beige stone. And then he uses these huge windows, which um, is stained glass windows, but it's not stained glass as you would think an old church. It's literally just panels of color and different shades of color. So you would have an entire section of just green. And it's all different shades of green. But then as the sunlight hits these windows, you'd get these um, pillars of stone bathed in this green light. And all of a sudden, this entire space changes, transforms because of the light that you see around you. And it mm. all comes via this windows. Oh, yeah, I think um, it's, it's so interesting how you often need a designer or an architect to make people realize the presence of things such as shadows and reflections. Um, one of my favorite artists is uh, James Terrell. And he says that uh, people don't look at light, they look at what light reveals. And I find that so prominent in everyday life because people don't look at their shadows on a daily basis. But if you have someone or a building or a product or an artwork that, that points out the constant presence of your shadow, it just creates this love affair with the atmosphere that shadows can have. And, and I really feel like that's something that art um, can, uh, can emphasize. It's actually interesting. This, uh, this morning I saw a video about, was it yesterday? I saw a video about the, um, a photographer talking about the quality of light. And his uh, people, he said people ask him all the time, was, um, how do you know that the, the quality of the light is good? And um, so he, he then basically does this, uh, he starts out his whole thing by um, analyzing, well, not analyzing, it just shows images or video clips of good light in a, in a space, like um, outside. Um, and you can see buildings bathed in this wonderful light coming through. And his opinion was that you need to, I mean, he wants to get people to, to appreciate good light through their daily lives. Mm, that's, that's really exciting. And I think once again, it also relates to presence and awareness, like being aware of your environment through the light, um, whether that's sunlight or natural light that falls on walls or floors and shows you the different times of day or whether that's, um, you know, digital light. There are a lot of um, new technologies and lighting that people are also exploring in, in art and architecture. And I feel like light is such a wonderful um, indication of human presence. 
especially if you think of darkness, if you think of darkness in a place where there's no electricity, you will know there's a human presence by seeing fire or candles. Um, and in cities, we know how many people are in that city or we guess it based on the amount of lights that are on at night. So light and, and presence, those are really nice concepts that I like exploring. Explain to me the process that you go through if you want to do an installation of lights. So I haven't had um, as many experiences that are ideal as I would have liked, but um, I'll tell you my ideal situation. Um, my ideal situation is to be given a space and then I could create an artwork that is site specific. So based on what that space is like atmospherically, its size, the resonance in there, um, you know, it's, it's all about really trying to just experience it and try and pin down um, what aspects of that space really stands out or comes forward. But I have been in many situations where, um, especially with competitions like APSA, Atelier, or um, Sasolni Signatures, for a lot of those competitions, you can't just build in the space. It's a competition, so you have to go through a process of adjudication. So then you say, okay, I'm imagining a two by two by two meter cube, and I want this to have a specific kind of um, navigational aspect, like how would people move through the installation, and you plan that. And um, do you want the space to be dark? And then in my case, I, I really prefer creating artworks in the dark. And I think it's because it really relates to my farm experience. Again, my game farm experience, because as that sort of tracker person, I would be the one who sits in front of the safari vehicle holding up the spotlight. So I would be scanning the landscape. And in darkness, when you're, you're really focusing on that spotlight, um, everything is, is framed by the perspective of the person holding the spotlight and all the sounds and things. So it's really quite immersive when you focus on what it is that you're seeing and hearing. So I like recreating those dark areas and um, working with light kind of as a metaphor for perspective um, because our perspectives and our perceptions really influence the way we experience things. And hopefully by creating these environments in um, whether they're site specific or kind of made up illusionary spaces, it, it allows people to kind of change their perceptions of things. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> exactly. On the other side of the spectrum, you also, um, you're a lecturer. Yeah, I really like teaching. I started teaching in my third year as a fine arts student. Um, because I knew if I wanted to pursue my installation art dreams that I wouldn't necessarily start off by making a lot of money. Installations don't sell in galleries, understandably so, especially if they're site-specific. It's not easy to redo them or put them in someone's house. Um, so I, I really enjoy theory as well as practical, and then I started teaching at third year. And um, yeah, a few years later in, um, I've been teaching full-time for the past uh, uh, about eight years, I would say, including the tutoring. And it's just the best way to stay on your feet because um, especially with one of the subjects that I'm teaching at the moment. So my colleague, Monet Fender, um, developed this course called Creative Development. Monet is available on Instagram as well as Velvet Fender. Um, it forces students to concentrate on creativity as a skill that needs to be developed. So in that environment, the lecturer is also forced to constantly bounce ideas to and fro between the, the student and themselves. So it keeps you on your feet. It keeps your brain stimulated. And um, it's so easy to take things like that back to your work at home. Or if you're a full-time artist, it's wonderful to see how the things that you've learned through your art process um, influences students who might be studying something else. So I teach creative development, drawing and illustration, and then I co-supervise honors students. Um, uh, so that's the list because I, I've been reading up on you on the, some of the profiles that I got and um, they, they say you're an illustrator. Do you do illustration itself? 
I wouldn't actually necessarily call myself an illustrator. Um, I, I still battle a little bit to differentiate between the, um, you know, the, those two fields, fine arts and illustration. There's definitely a lot of overlap. And I mean, um, you know, they're both art historical categories. So they, they have the same history. But I must say that um, some of my works are more illustrative in terms of fine line and detail. And they could have a more quirky nature. And um, some of my pieces are uh, a bit more fine art, if one could say that, um, because they do deal perhaps with a very laborious process with analyzing space. So illustration is also very typically two-dimensional, um, where I like to ideally explore things three-dimensionally in addition to that. So drawing, drawing and illustration and, and painting, um, you know, th those are things that I really enjoy doing in between installations. Um, but installations are sort of the future that I see myself in. Uh, you, you know, obviously the the land arts guys, like um, what's it? Yes, yeah. That's fascinating. Moving into a space and then just changing the space, like in a in a nature uh, to to yeah. How would you explain land arts? I'm trying to, and I'm failing. <laughs> Um, yeah, so there are very different kinds of it, but I would say it's definitely um, an intervention in a landscape. And that intervention could either completely change the experience of the landscape or um, perhaps emphasize its natural condition in order for others to experience it better or um, in heightened sort of awareness of it. So if I think of um, Smithson's spiral jetty, for example, it was definitely working with, uh, definitely working with the, the reef as it currently is, but emphasizing the effect of the chemicals in the water by creating this spiral structure where it concentrates certain chemicals. So to me, that's an example of, of heightening the experience of that natural environment. Um, or I think, who was it again? Claude. Mm, they did this running wall, which is just this kilometers or kilometers and kilometers of cloth that are being spun across, um, you know, a landscape. So it's this, this barrier that completely intervenes with what that space naturally would be like, or that landscape naturally would be like. So that that's, kind of how I would see um, land art is really working with that environment and either commenting on it or um, commenting on things besides the landscape that seem emphasized as soon as you place it in a landscape. Would you be interested in, in, in putting your art in because some of the art that most of the art that I saw that you do is more gallery based. Would you be interested in taking it outside? Definitely. I've actually been to Africa Burn before um, and that really got me excited for working in uh, outdoor spaces. I think one of the main things that has been um, just a difficult to control kind of thing is because um, in a landscape, you know, weather has its role. <laughs> and I, I often work with structures that are hanging and if there's a lot of wind, they could um, that could really disrupt the structure. And my my installations are typically very uh, lightweight. So in some aspects, it would be wonderful to work with them in landscapes. Um, so they would be light and airy, soft sort of interventions. But on the other hand, um, I do like my rooms. I like little rooms, like pockets of atmosphere, where I can perhaps control uh, the the navigation through it a little bit better and and with galleries in mind they're typically rooms you know like white cubes or black cubes so I do try and consider that because it is always difficult to find a piece of land on which you are able to work um, for months on end mm. so, okay, let's break it down <laughs> and go to some rapid fire questions do you have any pets Yes, I do. I have two lovely dogs. They're very furry and fluffy and just the highlight of my day. What, are, what type of dogs are they? Uh, the one is a Labradoodle called Milou, which is um, the original name for Tintin's Snowy, but in the French one. And the other one is a Pomeranian um, or Toy Pom. <laughs> And her name is uh, Sasquatch or Sassy. I'm just thinking a Sasquatch, huge Bigfoot and this tiny Pomeranian. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I'm fast. laughs> Facebook or Instagram? Instagram. A telephone call or an email? Email. What is your spirit animal? Oh, no. I never think about these things. Um, 
so I definitely think one of my dogs would be ideal spirit animals for me because they do kind of, um, you know, represent some of my personal aspects. But there is a type of animal that I really do enjoy. Um, and I actually don't know what it is in English. It's called a daikety. So it's a tiny little... Um, yeah, it's a little water bug with tiny... Yeah, okay. If you don't know what the daikety is, go and Google it. I'm Googling it now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually trying to see. I'm not, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the audience. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, I, I really like... Um, the daikir or daikirki because they're they're just these these sort of hidden creatures um they're really adorable and on the game farm as well um you felt so privileged to be able to spot one and yeah i think that's just the first thing that i can think of now yeah they're quite shy <laughs> which is weird because i'm not necessarily but they have this um this you know this way of exploring um rocks and and hidden caves and things which i also think is interesting because they're quite adventurous in that way perhaps okay who would play you in the movie of your life mm, i could only wish that it would be emma stone and the reason why i say that is because she's um she's hilarious i really enjoy her but she could also play these very serious roles um and i just some of the characters that she she's played before are, are usually these kind of clever characters that you can relate to um, and, and that's how I would love to be seen. I don't know if I am that way. And it definitely as a lecturer, you don't want to be too intimidating and you want to have a sense of humor, but you also want people to take you seriously. So Emma Stone would be wonderful. Not that I look anything like her, but yes. <laughs> cool. If you had a superpower, what would it be? I think ideally um, to be able to speak all different languages, understanding and speaking all the languages on earth, because I just feel that there's such a communication gap, especially in South Africa. Um, and I, I try to learn as many languages as possible, but when you just actually want to know what the general mood in the environment is, what people's opinions are, what people are saying around you, and just to be able to communicate properly. I think as an artist, that's really important to be able to communicate. And um, going overseas as well, I always try and learn a little bit of the language. And recently we went to uh, Croatia with a group of students. And uh, speaking Croatian was not very easy, but it was such an interesting language. And um, people opened up to you a lot more if you're able to speak their language. And I feel like people will share, share their stories better if we wouldn't have to translate all these time, all, all the time, I mean, rather. Yeah. I just, uh, uh, whenever I deal with people overseas, you, you get this, this, this moment where you would want to, I want to make a joke all the time because I'm me. So the moment I try to make a joke, my wife keeps telling me, look, you do understand that they're not going to get this joke. So you might, must, you need to keep this tiny and small because this is probably going to fall flat it's going to has to be one sentences and just one meaning per sentence yeah definitely and and when it comes to jokes um i think jokes are incredibly creative because jokes give you this different perspective on things and jokes are so culturally motivated as well um, it, it's the same with idioms and things. So being able to understand uh, where people are coming from. I know in French, there's often something related to, to cuisine or food. Like I think if you say, I'm, I'm going to translate into English, uh, like someone hasn't had their egg yet today. Like, you know, like, or he, he's not um, lying well in his plate of food or something like that. And I'm like, oh. that's so cool that they have these, these idioms or these sayings that are related to food. And then when I think of um, my home language and some others that I know, they're all very different. It's very interesting. Yeah, very cool. Um, what is your favorite movie quote? Movie quotes? Um, pretty much anything from Waking Life. Um, Waking Life is one of my favorite films. I think it says, on really romantic, uh, no wait, sorry. On really romantic evenings of self, I go salsa dancing with my confusion. And I really like that. <laughs> uh, what's on your music playlist right now? So um, on my way home, I just listened to Apparat. Um, and I'm a huge fan of Nine Inch Nails. And they have a few new songs that came out from an album or EP called... Um, 
add violence. So I, I do, let's say, shop around with my ears a lot, but there are a few musicians or bands that I will never stop listening to. Um, they include Radiohead, Porter's Head, Massive Attack, Tool, Nine Inch Nails, and Tom Waits. Those are my absolute favorites of all time. That's fantastic, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How would you describe your art in an elevator to a stranger? Um, my art is there to really question whether your sight is enough to give insight, I suppose. Wow. <laughs> that's, very, that's a very abstract description, but hopefully that makes them curious enough. <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be answered by a glass of wine and a long discussion. Yes. <laughs> okay, I think that's, that's it for the rapid fire questions. Um, Yay! Oh. <laughs> it's a bit stressful there. <laughs> Tell me, um, uh, I read that you did a residency in Paris. Yes, I was very, very happy and very honored um, to be sponsored by Tux at the end of my honors year to go to the Cité Internationale des Arts in Paris um, for two months. And I had the opportunity to host a open studio exhibition. So it's really wonderful because you, you're in this residency with like 200 other artists. Um, well, not just fine artists, but musicians or architects and designers and things like that. And it's up to you whether you want to show work or not, or just attend all of the exhibitions that they give you um, uh, passes to and things like that. So that's where I really feel like my art or my installation specifically I got some relevance because I presented my work to an audience that I've never had before. Um, and, and I had wonderful uh, commentary after that. And people really pushed me to keep going. And, and that was just the best, best thing that could have happened to me. To me, um, when we when I look at your work um, uh, or what I saw basically online, um, there seems to be a lot of soldering and hammering going on in the installations <laughs> that you do. Um, <laughs> You want to talk a bit about this? It's more like a maker than it is like you're expecting an artist to be. Um, definitely. I think the after my honors, which was uh, traditional fine arts, I decided to go study um, my master's in interactive media. So I was very interested in, in going to a bit of a different direction with it. And for interactive media, which is a, an MA in digital arts, I had to learn to program and work with sensors and solder things and work with microcontrollers and circuits. So I think that's, um, you know, that, that really added a new layer to my work. Um, in terms of working with other power tools and things, um, I really do enjoy sculpture, although I'm not a sculptor myself. So I have collaborated a lot um, with people in different fields. And one of my favorite collaborations was with uh, Guy and Peter Detoy. And, and Guy Detoy is, is a brilliant sculptor and very well known, obviously, in South Africa. But it was so wonderful to work with him and, you know, to, to work with all the power tools and things again in his studio. It just makes you feel like you can do anything if you have all those tools available to you. How do you do the collaborations? So, um, it helps to be part of a artist collective. For example, I'm part of a found collective and, you know, other things like the arts association is wonderful, wonderful to be a member of that. But so found collective um, approached the artists that are part of it to, um, to collaborate for an exhibition. So they would put two random people together and say, why don't you guys try and make an artwork together? So another really exciting collaboration that I uh, embarked on was with E.O. McCandle. McCandle has these very exciting, um, very experimental and, and free kind of drawings and installations that she does. And McCandle and I never met before. So this collaboration was wonderful because we actually decided to uh, collaborate over a long distance. We didn't actually meet ever until we got to the exhibition of the work that we did together. So we talked over the phone and over emails and things. And I started a drawing slash collage kind of abstract piece. And I told her about the experiences that I had throughout making it. And then I sent it off to her without meeting her. 
And then she just continued working on it. So she worked on it with some of the ideas that influenced me and she brought in her own. And it was really fantastic because the, the final result was just this very honest, sincere piece where it's not really like two styles clashing or anything. It's just, it just somehow worked together really well. And we happened to explore uh, similar perspectives in our work um, without knowing it. So that was, that was one amazing collaboration that was obviously encouraged by Found Collective. The one with um, Peter and Guy Detoy was also um, for Artlop, for an exhibition for Artlop, also by Found Collective. But I have actually experienced uh, collaborations before that a lot with my boyfriend, who's a musician. And then for my master's, oh my goodness, um, for my final master's project, we had one month and the interactive media students were forced to collaborate with the uh, electrical engineering students as well as the music composition students. And that was the most epic collaboration ever. Um, so how that works is we get together and I think we were 14 or more people who've never worked together before who had to come up with one concept together. And that, that's really tricky. So there's a lot of um, people disagreeing. There's a lot of uncertainty. And it's really important when you collaborate to, to get through that process and to allow each other to be open-minded to other people's perspectives. Because to me, in a collaboration, um, each person taking part um, should have an equal effect or role in the final product. So, you know, you're, you're producing something where each uh, kind of field or each person in it is interdependent. We got the electrical engineers and the interactive media students and the uh, music students together. And the, the first thing that we had to really explore besides the concept was to figure out what kind of thing is it going to be? Is it going to be a performance? Is it going to be an artwork? And where is it going to take place? So this kind of worked in reverse um, for me. Usually I would work with my materials my concepts first but this because it was you know something that we had to do in a month we had to kind of figure out where's it going to be and what are the options in that space and Vits, where um which is where i studied for my masters Vits arranged for us to have a live performance in the Vits planetarium which is the most amazing atmospherical space so obviously i was super excited and um, working with the electrical engineers, we were able to really experiment with technology as a way to experience art. So they worked on this design for bone conductive headsets. So bone conduction is um, different to normal headphones or headsets. It's something that vibrates on a part of your skull. And through that vibration, you hear the sound internally. So you're not just hearing through your ears. It's actually um, because of the vibrations that you experience the sound. So they really wanted to bring out the way that you experience the sound. The music composition students had to perform the sound and we had to provide the interaction. Like how would the audience members um, interact with this performance? So my part of the collaboration was to finalize the, the visual um, sort of feedback uh, what it would look like and to work with uh, programming the remotes for each person that went into the show so I uh, basically hacked some television remotes and reprogrammed them to send specific infrared signals and those infrared signals would change the images that are projected onto the the dome of the planetarium and those images would tell the musicians what they need to play based on the colors and the shapes and things that they're seeing so the audience would um, change the visual effects as well as the the sound they would influence that direct indirectly and uh, the other thing that i had to do was just work with a lot of projectors and that was the most fun thing i've ever done i had to work with the super old school mechanical um, star projector then two digital projectors and six slide projectors and we had to do this live and my my two um classmates had to work with the code a lot of coding to make the right things uh, happen at the right times and um, the electrical engineers obviously had to make sure that everything's working and everyone's plugged into the system all the musicians had to 
uh, perform into in uh, like gas masks and things because they didn't because everything's experienced through headsets bone connected headsets everything had to be digitized so whether they were playing electric or electronic drums or they were singing that was recorded into something but it was all live and we did five concerts in two days and we had one month and we never met before <laughs> that sounds unbelievable it's really such a cool <laughs> idea that's yeah. really fascinating tell me um so you're part of this collective and it sounds like this collective is really a, the place you want to be at how do you get to be part of a collective like this the most important thing i can tell to any artist is that the gateway to art is to experience it not to make it so you really need to go to as many galleries and art events as you possibly can you need to talk to an artist you need to talk to the gallery um, assistants or managers and so found collective um i do know a lot of the artists who have founded it or um you know who have studied with me some of them and have been in the pretoria art scene for a while so you know it really helps to get to know the people in in your town and what kind of things they're doing for art um, a lot of them are also members of the arts association so becoming a member of that really helped me to get exposure to these kinds of collectives and they they, they kind of serve as, as uh, curators for shows but also come up with interesting concepts like the the collaborative thing and um, the title for the collaborative show was called snake eyes uh, so that was quite a fun show for art club it's really cool it makes me want to go out and find myself a collective you should it's, it's what should. we need we need all the support we can tell me do you have an idea of what you will end with when you start um to an extent but the the beauty of installation is really that you're so dependent on everything in the space whether it's light or sound once again that you can you can perhaps aim to control a certain aspect of the experience um like how light or how dark it is, but you can't necessarily predict exactly what reflections are going to look like or how people are going to move in the space. So, you know, there's a lot of chance in, in that environment. It's a very indeterminate process. And um, in creative development, uh, we have something called fuzzy goals. So if you want your projects to be very creative, um, you should have fuzzy goals because that means you'll have to go through multiple iterations of your ideas before you get to the final product. So don't be too specific because then it won't allow you to freely be creative with what's presented in each iteration of the idea. That sounds really cool. There's a, there's a, um, I'm part of the maker crew um, online where a lot of the guys um, go out and they make stuff. So it'll be a table or a chair or what, um, whatever they need to do. And there's this uh, movement of guys that will go into a space and then they will say, okay, I have an idea that I want to achieve X. I want to make a chair, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. And in this space now, I'm going to go there. There's going to be no plan. There's going to be no future planning on what's what we're going to be needing. We can actually just wing it and see where we get, where we go. That's awesome. I think, um, especially once again, sorry, but I think like collaborations are so important. But with collaborations, it's often you get together, you have a day, you make a plan. And resourcefulness is the best quality or best skill to have in this day and age make a plan and when the world ends we're going to need creative people because there aren't going to be plans <laughs> <laughs> this is it's very interesting um there's a, a a guy that i follow um uh, so the, i don't know if you know the makers uh, that's online um at all no uh, but i knew i know of a couple of projects that people have mentioned to me before and the kind of things that get up to right so um the the makers that i follow um, is the youtube guys and they mostly uh, make youtube videos um, explaining to you how to make things so if you've ever been on youtube to learn how to wire a plug or um, how to um, rig or hack a, a led light then it's quite possibly a maker that showed you how to do that um, and then this um, this one guy called Bob Claggett. He's a guy from I Like to Make Stuff, a very big YouTube um, maker. Um, what he does is he goes into his uh, workshop and then he runs his Twitch stream. 
where his followers can then look at him make in real time. And then he will go in and he'll problem solve with his, um, his audience, which at that time could be anything between 100 and 1,000 people on the stream who will then comment. And he will say, I've got this problem. I need to check, fix this part to that part. How would I do that? And then immediately the guys will start answering in the Twitch stream saying, you need to do this, you need to do that or whatever. And then he says, well, let's try it. And then he'll go through the different options live in front of you and then say, okay, well, that didn't work, but this did work. So we're going to go with this idea. That is really, really exciting. And I would love to do some, I mean, I think I kind of do that with some of my two-dimensional pieces, because if I think about some of the collages and things um, that I've made before, it's usually working with leftovers or scraps. So things that you wouldn't normally use, and then you just have to put them together and, and, and make it work. So that's visual problem solving. But working with materials and, and once again, spaces, that is a dream environment to be in because you're just thriving on your creativity. That's all that you're doing. That's really cool. I'm really excited about the, the whole um, maker aspect of it. Um, I didn't realize the, the level of which um, the, the makerness is also represented in this uh, this form of art. Definitely, I think um, the makerness is is basically just an exercise in creativity. I mean, obviously, the DIY element of it um, and the educational or formative part of it is, is wonderful as well. And the idea that everyone can be a maker um, in this day and age because Google um, <laughs> exactly is is quite exciting. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, tell me, um, have you, do you say you've been to Africa, Burn? have you seen the guys that plays around with the fire? Yeah, well, there's always a lot of fire. <laughs> but but the, it's been a while since I've been to that uh, Africa, burn that, Africa Burn that I'm speaking of. But um, back then, um, obviously, I'm not talking about the main burning of the, the main sculpture, but they were, I'm assuming you're talking about the people who um, create these things that light up and are sort of thrown in the air kind of thing and they play with them. I don't know. <laughs> so the, 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 there's a group of guys that look, as I understand it, Africa Burn was taken from the um, Burning Man Festival in the, U, um, the US. And there's a group of um, pyrotechnics who specialize in making sculptures, fire sculptures for, Afri uh, for uh, Burning Man. And they will uh, proceed to build these like two-story um, tall sculptures that is made to be flame spewing out and over and around it. Um, and the, the whole technology that goes into that. I actually listened to a, um, a I don't know if it was a podcast where um, they spoke to a lady who specializes in fire art, where they actually create these constructions um, and creations uh, specifically for, for Burning Man to be these huge installation sculptures where the uh, fire plays a huge part in it. And they spoke to this one person, um, I think it was a, a lady or a guy, and he said, the, the, the awesome, what was the big Best piece that he's ever seen and he said um, there was this one piece where the flames that was fired it was a metal structure and as the flames were fired onto the surfaces of this thing um, it, it the flame appeared on the sides but when it died down the heat of that was generated by the flames caused different heat patterns to appear on the metal structures and that will die down as the, the flame goes away. And as the flame comes back, it'll then go glow red again. And different areas glows more red than other areas. And that actually caused the entire interaction of color and the flames and the metal and the sculpture. Oh, that is so amazing. Um, I, I re what I really like about Africa Burn and this uh, idea of working with the elements of fire is it also breaches the gap between art and things like uh, science and chemistry and stuff. Because if you think about different liquids that burn in different ways or different materials that really pushes your creative boundaries again, um, the, the project that I took to Africa Burn was based on a very... Um, well-known uh, scientific experiment that's called um, a Rubens tube. A Rubens tube works with uh, gas. So you would have a tube that has little holes um, that you make on the top of the tube. And on the one end of the tube, it's closed. On the other end, you have a sound source and the tube is filled with gas. So when you play um, music through the tube, it changes the compression of air and gas inside the tube because of sound waves that are being formed. And if you light um, 
the gas that's obviously flowing out of those little holes, it creates these flames. And because of the air that's shifting in the tube, the length of the flames change in height. So you're basically seeing sound waves in the shape of uh, fire um, and different lengths of fire. And I have seen um, how people have used uh, different types of pigments and uh, patinas and things like that and chemicals to also change the color of the flames. So then you're working with sound as well as mood and color and uh, those are just wonderful opportunities to once again um, breach the gap between art and other fields and really create this otherworldly experience. I, I love that. I love the entire concept of of, of inter, the interplay between it. Tell me, do you find that that you um, so you play a lot in the, the musical world and in the art world? Do you find that there's other world um, uh, creative worlds that that influence how you create what you do? Um, definitely. Since you know, since I initially did consider being a musician. Um, I, I really thought about what is the relationship between sound and the visual. And to, to simplify that, I looked at the basic things that music and the visual consist of. So in, in music, it's sound or, or air, basically. And in the visual, it's, it's light because um, we can't see without light. So um, those are two very opposite sort of synesthetic senses that speak for one another. And one of the things that I really wanted to investigate was the idea that they're dependent on one another. Um, so often you would think of music performance as something that just has a visual element added to it. So if you think of a live band performing, there might be some visuals or some lights and they kind of go with the sound. And to me, that was not enough to make the visuals as live as the music. So I really wanted to work with light um, and make light live. So I do um, a lot of live performances with um, my boyfriend, Lodens Ferrara, who is a musician, as well as some other artists where we do live visualization with live sound. So um, it is a audio visual jam session and a jam session with visuals is something that needs to happen a lot more because people tend to take very long to produce art. But if you put a few artists together and you say, listen, this is going to happen live, react live to the sound that you're hearing or actually try and lead the, the um, musicians with the imagery that you're creating or the light or the atmosphere, that relationship, that audio visual correspondence, that to me is golden and really something that I want to pursue because if you're not the musician <laughs> then at least um, you know it would be wonderful to perform as someone who understands music and could um, interpret it while it's being made and I, I do I do sometimes um, work with musical compositions in my artworks so I, I have for example for my honors uh, final exhibition composed um, a music piece that consisted of field recordings that I remixed and um, my artworks which consisted of fans and lamps and things were programmed um, to react to those recordings and those recordings were of those objects so it was a recording of a fan that I would play to a fan and then the fan would react to it. <laughs> um, so it was like a sound sensitive fan or lamp. <laughs> and I, I didn't know how to program or anything, but I did find some cool hardware things to hack into. So for example, uh, my friend at the time had this little, it's called a sound to light unit. And a lot of DJs use it in clubs because they would play music and then these lights would go on and off on the beat of the music, you know? So you would have your bass lights and your tweeter lights and whatever. So I just took that device and decided, well, what if I plug something else into it that's not a lamp? <laughs> um, I did blow up a lot of things as well, but 
<laughs> but I, so I plugged a fan into it and the fan would go like, it would rotate faster if there's more sound and it would go completely still, there's no sound. Um, or it would just shift slightly if there's like interrupted sound. And that was so interesting to me how, you know, it, it's funny because music is air and the fan, you know, produces air. So what, what does it mean when you create a sound reactive fan? Because it's a very dysfunctional thing. So I liked creating the installation where these everyday objects were the performers um, and uh, very appropriately working with fans. Uh, it has a nice little wordplay on for the fans kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love it. The, um, I was wondering now, have you ever worked with, um, with like dancers as well? No, but I would love to because I'm a dancer myself. So choreography is, is really something that, you know, responds well once again to music. And choreography and light are a wonderful combo. There are so many artists out there who are doing these projection mapping projects where, you know, they project onto the dancers and the dancers can kind of react to these projections. So that's definitely something that I would love to explore. I just need people to get hold of me and we just have to do it. <laughs> definitely going to give your name and details out so people can get hold of you if they're interested in, in collaborating with you. I once saw this, um, uh, it was an animation, um, and it's a computer animated guy, but he does, um, so he did an animation of a, a little narrative story. But what he then did was he actually uh, collaborated with uh, dancers, and the, um, he had this vision, and the, uh, the, the choreographer um, did, uh, worked out the entire uh, dance routine with two actors. And uh, two dancers, and then they uh, did the dance, and he recorded that, and then he um, animated that. But he could do things which the dancers couldn't do. But the dancers gave a ground, uh, a weight to his animations that he couldn't do on his own. So the collaboration of the two formed this unbelievably amazing um, uh, uh, piece. And I'm going to look for it now, and I'm going to, when I find it, I'm going to actually link it in um, on our webpage www.artistspodcast.co.za. And I'm going to link through that thing and I'm going to link through your details through as well. Thank you. That's so cool. I'm really <laughs> excited. Yeah, you got me all fired up here to collaborate and do art with people. Thank you. I'm glad. I really, um, even on Instagram, I've, I've made my little short bio under my name. Um, it says artist slash collaborator <laughs> slash lecturer because I, I really feel like that's the future is um, being exposed to other perspectives and when you collaborate you produce things that you wouldn't have been able to do on your own and especially if you feel stuck in your own work you just need to work with other people whether you like them or not I think sometimes it's even interesting to work with people that you just don't agree with um, and I've had cases like those where um, we did this workshop it was a five-day workshop um, it was created by the British Council in association with um, something called 1.0 Cascade. So they put people together and they're, you know, different years of study or outside of the field and also from different disciplines. And they're like, okay, cool. You guys have to make a really exciting interactive artwork for a massive party where there's going to be 300 people. Go. And, you know, and then you just like sit with people and you're like, what is this guy going on about? I really don't get it. <laughs> but then that forces you to, to make a link, to create a connection. Um, so even if it's something that you don't necessarily resonate with, I feel like collaboration is, is extremely healthy for stimulating creativity. That's really cool. To me, um, the, the, the collaborations that you do, is that mostly because of the, the work that you do in uh, being a lecturer? Um, well, yes, I think, I think my collaborations were really kickstarted with my honors project because I started working with, um, electrical things. So initially, you know, I did a lot, I got a lot of feedback and, um, advice and help from people that don't study art and I really like their perspectives. So then I'm like, Hey, would you want to collaborate instead of me just asking for help? Let's actually make something together. And, and that's kind of where it started. But as a lecturer, um, there are so many students who have the most insane, amazing ideas. And, um, you know, I would really like to collaborate with my students more. I've collaborated a lot with other lecturers and other colleagues. Um, not that much, but um, 
quite a, quite a few lecturers that I've really enjoyed working with. So I think it's also something that actually started um, in the Surrealist period because the Surrealists had this thing called um, exquisite corpse. So when you make an exquisite corpse, you share the artwork. So a very simple example would be if I give you um, a painting or a drawing to do and I ask you to do a portrait, you can do the eyes and then I'll do the nose and someone else does the mouth. Like That's a very simple example. But that exquisite corpse culture um, is something that we also do where I teach. So we also ask students to participate in exquisite corpses and then we exhibit them. And it's actually quite interesting to see um, staff and lecturers exhibit uh, on this, at the same exhibition because you'll see that there's a lot of, um, there's so much creativity that you can't really differentiate necessarily between a lecturer or a student when it comes to these kinds of projects because everyone's on a level playing field especially if you're working with materials you don't normally work with then it's your creativity that's showing and creativity is a skill it's something that can be developed so sometimes you could have this really really experienced lecturer but you could have a student that has more creative skill so it's really nice to put those two together and um, yeah put people on equal playing grounds I love that. Tell me, uh, the one thing that's keep on nagging in my mind is how do you make money out of this? I mean, how do you physically go ahead and say, okay, I'm going to do this now? <laughs> um, uh, in my case, you don't. <laughs> um, so I have sold many two-dimensional artworks, um, but I've only sold one installation in my life. And I was very surprised because it, it's not something that sells easily. And that's why I got into teaching. I would love to be a full-time artist, but I knew I had to do something to keep me going and to get my materials and things like that. Um, can you hear the Huddy does? Yeah, I just heard him. <laughs> Welcome to so South Africa, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, there's so many where I live. It's such a Pretoria sound as well. No, it's a Cape Town sound as well these days. Oh, really? Yeah, I, you know what? I've never really experienced Cape Town. It's so bad. Oh, you're missing out. So I've been all over the world. I've never been to Cape Town. Yeah, it's like me. I've never been to Durban. Crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. It's we, we, I go to, I've been to Barcelona, I've been to Berlin, but I haven't been to Durban. It's like right next door. That's ridiculous. Anyways. We need to do something about that. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Fine sidetrack what was i talking mm. about <laughs> um how did i uh, uh, talk about money are we talking about how oh, yeah. yeah so i think that you could you could appropriate installation art to something that is more commercial and i think um an area or a gap that there is in the market is if you think of a lot of um commercial spaces like huge spaces with big offices um sometimes they're really you know they don't have a great atmosphere so i think it's an ideal opportunity for sculptors and um installation artists to really change the place and once again mixing that with design so if you think about um designs for things such as lighting you know working with with lighting and um creating these interesting kind of sculptural lighting uh pendants or or lampshades a friend of mine is um a puppeteer and she creates these beautiful puppets um Minka, Minka for sure. And she creates these beautiful uh, puppets that are made out of wood and they're these anatomical um, or anatomically interesting creatures and they, they move in very beautiful ways when you use them. But I keep looking at these wonderful puppets of hers and wishing that there were lights in them and I could hang them from my ceiling. So you just have to be very um, opportunistic if you're an installation artist because galleries are not necessarily going to take you in that easily. Um, create an environment that works i'm really considering um creating a garage gallery because i often build my installations in my garage um and i spoke to a curator and gallery owner johan tom recently and he's like yeah well that's what they did you know they they had garage exhibitions so you know start start with something like that and um just keep exploring and the money might not come instantaneously but also document your work make videos of it um get that kind of exposure and eventually you will probably either get sponsorship or someone that really wants your installations permanently installed i i like thinking of installation art as the the sort of ideal um, field to work in but I usually have to produce paintings and drawings and teach in order to actually fund some of my installations even though some of them are actually made with found objects that are free or that come from hospices. 
<laughs> That's uh, the big thing that I did as well. I went into uh, do more web design and uh, website building um, and coding the past mm, 10 years where um, to find my art habit. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's a nice habit. <laughs> it is a nice habit, but can be quite pricey if you're not careful. Definitely, uh, yeah. And swap swap artworks as well. Swapping yes, pieces yes, are great. I, great. I work for I work for wine and I work for art because most people that are that uh, give me work doesn't give, doesn't have, is not artists. But I will work for art with artists. So like <laughs> yeah, good good principle to have. I was wondering, um, have you ever tried to like connect up or work with um, architects? Not really. Um, it sounds like a logical step to take, but I haven't really had the opportunity. There's a lot of uh, yeah, there's a lot of dialogue between artists and architects. And I mentioned the artist James Terrell, but he um, he works a lot with architects. In fact, he created this very interesting project called Road and Crater, which is a structure that's in a crater in the desert. So it is definitely a next step that I would like to take. Um, and, and, and interior designers as well. Uh, we are past one hour now. So <laughs> we can start wrapping it up, though I do not want to, because this is fascinating. And oh, when you come to Cape Town, wait, not if, uh, we need to have like a glass of wine, uh, at least a bottle and discuss yes. stuff because this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, there's one last thing I would also just mm. like to say. Um, another thing that I keep forgetting that really influences me is I'm a bit of a geek and I absolutely adore video games. Okay. What's your so, favorite game? Um, I am a fan of the Bioware RPGs. Okay. So I really like um, Dragon Age and uh, Mass Effect. So these are sci-fi and fantasy games. And I read a lot of fantasy novels and things as well. And I think that does feed into my work because of the, um, the kind of atmosphere and other worlds that are in there. But, but also it's working with controllers and um, gamification. So understanding how people will experience things is super important. Uh, yeah, sorry, that's just something that I thought might be interesting. So, uh, Tommy, do you know um, like the, 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 the cosplay guys? Um, not the cosplay guys, but I know of a lot of people who do cosplay. Okay, but do you know, um, uh, what's it, Bold Around, Punish Props? No, no. So what he does is, uh, you talk about Mass Effect, he, um, he specializes in making foam arms and armor um, props that um, that that he actually has a, a whole book. Um, he's, he's got a, a whole YouTube channel where he shows you how to use foam to create the the weapons from, and he specializes in Mass Effect. Or oh, he did a oh, huge cool. group of Mass Effect weapons. Um, he and his wife also does costumes and um, in foam. So it's this fantastical world that is um, comes directly out of the video games. And he, I mean, he's a full on sculptor and. Um, he does these weapons, um, hot edge uh, sculpting um, weapons that exist in this game world. And there's a whole community of them out there. Um, and if you're interested in that type of thing, there's a, a thing called the RPF, which is a replica prop forum. Um, oh. And what they do is they do replicas of movies. Now, think of a movie and think of a prop that's in that movie. Now, somebody has already made and has put up uh, plans on how you can make that prop. So if we're talking Indiana Jones, everything in Indiana Jones, you can go out and make a prop or get the designs and stuff for from that, anything. So there's a whole group of guys online that actually make this. There's a whole a team of guys. And this stuff where you're talking about, you want to put lights in it and you want to have like a helmet and do stuff, there's a whole group of guys that specialize in doing just that. That's so exciting. Um, I'm also a huge Star Wars fan. I so. really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So um, yeah, so so any kind of robots and lightsabers and um, force-related things are definitely something that I'm very interested in as yes. well. Yes, <laughs> your inner geek shine, I love it. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what I do. So yeah, no. Um, the, well, anyways, check them out. They're they're really cool. But I got two more things that I'm interested in uh, from when I hear from you. Uh, what are you working on at the moment? At the moment, I'm working on an installation um, that has these very light and airy floating translucent vessels um, and they kind of tell the story of me holding the spotlights um, in the game farm because these vessels will be floating in the dark and it will be interactive um, so I'm going to ask my viewers to take flashlights 
or uh, perhaps their phones. I haven't decided yet, their phones, flashlights. And then I want them to, to light up these vessels and, and kind of explore them because when you light them up, they throw these massive shadows and reflections um, that are they're so interesting because they're very organic looking, even though it's a s synthetic material. So that installation I'm hoping to enter for Sassel New Signatures. Um, it's usually a good idea to enter for competitions if you're an installation artist because that's some place that you might get into, even though it's kind of like the lottery, but you might get into that and get a really interesting crowd that view your work. So um, in, in this installation, it's really about um, light once again as this metaphor for perspective. So if you think about your perspective and how it changes your environment or the other way around, when the viewer or the audience member holds a flashlight and lights up this installation, hopefully it'll influence their perceptions of their surroundings. And, and this is so important because perspective and perception goes back to our social political environment as well. Like what you think about things um, and, and trying to view that from different perspectives is really important. Cool. Uh, do you have two artists that you're following in the mo at the moment, people that you'd like to give a shout out to that we probably won't know of? Won't know of, I'm not sure. But one of my most favorite, just amazing South African artists is Barku Vilsenach. Um, he also works in installation and he produces insane body of work that's called um, Atlas for the Blind Astronomer. And it's, it's beautiful. And it is something that seeing people can experience, but it's, it's these beautiful braille atlases of um, star constellations. So it's got this beautiful tangible nature, but it also is viewed in the dark. And then um, a painter, sort of French South African, is Eric Duplan. So Eric Duplan's work is just, uh, he just explores super realistic versus extremely abstract in the most interesting way. He has these very beautiful symbols um, or mark making that he explores in his painting. And then those two artists are just an infinite inspiration to me. Fantastic. Where can people follow you to see what you do? Mostly on Instagram. I am still working on my website. And one of the, the main things is that I have a lot of issues with documenting my work, especially because it's in the dark. So you actually need very skilled videographers <laughs> to, to uh, video my work or help me to do that. Because um, I've done a lot of it on my own, but there's always some visual noise involved. So at the moment on Instagram, um, that's a day-to-day -day or weekly or monthly account of what I'm getting up to and a website coming up later. I also do have a Facebook art page, but I'm definitely not as present on Facebook as on Instagram. What is your Instagram name? Lala Crawford. <laughs> Simple. Cool. But I don't, I don't know any other Lala Craffords. <laughs> no problem. I'm going to have a link to your Instagram and some photographs of the stuff that we discussed on the website, uh, theartistspodcast.co.za. So you can see all the stuff there. Thank you very much, Lala. This was awesome. Thank you so much, Yehu. It's really, really fun talking to you. And you also have such a fresh perspective and you work with such an interesting combination of people and fields. So uh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Do you think this show is worth a cup of coffee? If you do, we would love to have it. And now there's a way for you to do just that. With Patreon, you can help us out for as little as a cup of coffee per month. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash artistspodcast or www.artistspodcast.co.za where you can find the link to our Patreon. And if you have a business and would like to advertise your gallery or brand, for the price of a pizza, I will call out your name at the beginning of the show. So go on over to patreon.com forward slash artistspodcast or www.artistspodcast.co.za Together, we can make this podcast truly great.